Good afternoon and welcome to Your American Heritage, where we do talk about the two things you're not supposed to talk about in polite society, religion and politics. My name is Ed Bondarenka and I'm, you know. Not your normal fluffy insurrectionist. Let's go, Brandon. It's day 290 of the coup, the takeover of the American government. This administration is at war with you. We are in the 22nd month of the COVID assault that began with 15 days to flatten the economy. This has been used as a tool to make us relinquish our freedoms and subjugate us. Wearing a mask is a symbol of submission. Now they want to inject your body with something that provably harms many people to prove you'll let them do anything to you. If you've survived the shot, good for you. Many don't. And it's a matter of principle. It may not be a hill you are willing to die on, but it's the one I've chosen. We are at war. If your government was for you, Maybe they'd protect the borders, not reward those insurgents with free health care, education, employment, and $450,000 each of our tax money. Let them invade our country without giving them the jab, but insisting you take it so that you can continue working to pay taxes to support the invaders and your oppressors. They are after us, those who don't bow down and worship Caesar to make the government our God. We are at war. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness. This is war, and we must realize that this is a spiritual battle. Let's go to war. Father, please lead us and guide us today and in the days to come. Please give us the wisdom we need as we fight this assault on our nation. Please help us retake the government from these traitors and criminals. Please continue to awaken the people to the plan against them. Please move mightily and either bring these oppressors to a place of repentance or imprisonment. Please encourage people to turn to you for support and strength. Folks, recently we've seen some small victories. Heck, we've seen some major victories. One of the blue states elected a Republican governor, a Republican lieutenant governor, who just happens to be black and a woman, and a Republican attorney general. And we thought Virginia was lost. The New Jersey State Senate president lost in a stunning upset by a guy who spent only $136 of his own money on his campaign. (laughs) You can do something, folks, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later in, in the show as soon as I get done chattering. New Jersey will probably see a recount challenge to unseat Democratic Governor Phil Murphy, and the city of Atlanta mayoral race will have a runoff. Special counsel John Durham, we thought after Barr took a dive, his appointee would also. Now he's got indictments against the Clinton crime syndicate members who are Russian collusion hoax agents. And we can pray that the apex target is Hillary herself. Then the U.S. Marshals ordered 400 inmates released from the D.C. Gulag, the D.C. jail, many of whom were wrongly imprisoned over the January 6th trespass erection. The marshals had been ordered by D.C. officials to leave the jail while they were inspecting it. And the judge who ordered the transfer said, quote, for the first time in history, they were ordered to leave the jail. The court's acting U.S. Marshal, Lamont J. Ruffin, a patriot, said he has never seen a jail bar marshals from entering. Water and heat had been turned off for days as punishment. You tell me we're not at war. Tell me that's not a POW camp. But patriots stood up to them and prevailed. School boards were put on notice by outraged parents. Courts have sided with the parents. 
That's grassroots in action. We saw a Republican victory that foreshadows 2022. People are fed up. But more importantly, it was a Democratic Party defeat. Not all Republicans are our friends. To get the right people in, we need to know who to support in the primaries, and we need good, solid, conservative delegates to the Republican convention. Now, I wanted to talk to somebody about delegates. So I called Pat Colbeck, and he said, hey, talk to Bob Cushman. And I called Bob Cushman, and he said to call the expert. So here to talk to us about delegates is Marion Sheridan. Let's welcome Marion. <laughs> Marion, tell us about yourself. Thanks, Ed, first off, for having me on the show. So um, I am a uh, original founder of the Lakes Area Tea Party, which is in Commerce Township. And uh, we, we still meet and we have uh, every meeting, we have 100, 150 people. So we're still a very active and perhaps one of the remaining tea parties in the state and a very large tea party. Um, I'm also one of the co-founders of Michigan Conservative Coalition. Uh, and out of that sprung Michigan Trump Republicans. And we started um, what I'm going to call a Michigan uh, precinct delegate project. And from that, I ended up running for grassroots vice chair of the Michigan Republican Party because we really thought we need to get more uh, platform loving, Republican platform loving uh, patriots involved and inside the party. Uh, so I'm uh, happy to say that I have, uh, this is my second term in that position. And um, it's because people stepped up and ran for these positions called precinct delegates. Uh, and, that, and that's what I'm hoping to encourage people to do uh, uh, from this radio show. Good, I'm glad to hear that. So I guess probably foremost in some people's minds is what is a precinct delegate? So let's start by what is a, a precinct. Everyone realizes, you know, when they go to vote, they go to vote at their precinct. So it's a small area that usually doesn't have more than uh, 2,000 to 2,900 voters in it. Who all and, show up on voting day at the same time. Yeah. And in the same line I'm in, and they're usually ahead of me, but go ahead. Yeah, but that's fun. We, we like to show yeah. up on voting day, actually. Um, yeah. so, uh, so every each party, the Democrat Party and the Republican Party, have a certain number of party representatives in every precinct. And uh, for the most part, it's anywhere from one to four precinct delegates that will cover a precinct. Um, so it's, it's important, you're kind of the representative for the party in your precinct. Um, so it, it's a good thing because people start to know you in your precinct, they start to turn to you and they often ask you who to vote for. <clears throat> so if you wanna know how you can vote 400 times legally, it's to become a precinct delegate. How do I know how many delegates are in my precinct and whether there's an opening? And would I, suppose I saw somebody, I go, oh, they're GOPE, as we call them, yeah. the GOP elite. How do I oust them to get their yeah. seat? Well, first off, uh, um, so many of the major counties, and I'm gonna say Oakland County, um, 
For example, you can go to the, uh, the Oakland County's clerk's site, uh, website, and you can navigate your way. You go to elections, and then when you get pull up elections, they will have list of Democrat precinct delegates and Republican precinct delegates. And you can pull up the Republican precinct delegates, and it will list all the precincts in Oakland County. It will tell you how many positions are available for precinct delegates, and it will list the people who are holding those positions. Now, here's the good thing or the bad thing is that many of these seats are not filled. Um, there's actually room for, I think it's like close to 15,000 precinct delegates in Michigan across the entire state. And we only have approximately 6,000 of those positions filled. Wow. So when you see that these positions are open, um, I won my first precinct delegate race as a write-in. And it's kind of a funny story because I have four kids who are uh, eligible to vote. So it should have been, I should have gotten at least five votes between my husband and my four kids and I only got four votes. So my husband wanted me to ask for a recount. He's like, okay, somebody didn't vote for you in our house. Or one of the kids gets coal for Christmas. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, so in that case, it's very easy. It's very easy to win those races. But the point you make is great. What do you do if you see other people's names? Uh, say there's three positions and it's already filled by three people. Um, then you're going to have to do some research. And I'm going to I'm, I'm going to throw out that people can contact us at the Michigan Conservative Coalition at gmail.com. And we may, if you, especially if you're in Oakland County, but even a lot of the other positions across the state, we may be able to help tell you uh, about the people that are holding those positions and whether they are, uh, and I'm gonna call them Michigan Trump Republican precinct delegates, or whether they are you know, people that have held these positions for years because they like the, uh, they like the, uh, title of, of holding, uh, being a precinct delegate and being, uh, you know, possibly going to the convention or the state convention. So we might be able to help with that. But, and then in that case, if it is a more establishment person in there, it's like, by all means, you should run against them. Now you have an office in Wald Lake. Is that right? We do. We have a okay, because I just found that I just found yeah. that on Google and you have Facebook. Uh -huh. So, folks, if you say I, I forgot to write that down, just Google Michigan Conservative Coalition. You don't even have to spell it right. That's one of the benefits of Google as bad as they are generally. But please yeah. continue. I didn't mean to interrupt, but I wanted to encourage. Yeah, no. Uh, so uh, so then once you, you know, and, and we're going to go. So then let's come back to this in a second. But in order to run to be a precinct delegate, there is, a, there is an affidavit that you will find fairly easily online. And uh, if you just Google, um, if you just put in uh, um, precinct Michigan precinct delegate uh, identification affidavit, uh, precinct delegate affidavit of identity, sorry. Uh, for 2022, that form will come up and you can print that form 
and fill out that form. Now you have to have it notarized. Yeah. Can I ask you a question first? Sure. Is there a chance that these instructions are on a tab at the Michigan Conservative Coalition webpage? Uh, they probably are there. And, uh, you know, I do have information that, you know, if people, once again, if they want to email us at Michigan Conservative Coalition at gmail.com, we'll send them back this information and a link to that affidavit. Good. Okay. Thank you. Uh, so then once they, they have to fill that form out, have it notarized, and the deadline for those forms to be uh, submitted to your county clerk is May 3rd. Oh, uh, and then I the, have election, time. the election is August. And so you have from May to August to find enough people in your precinct to uh, support you, to help you win that election. And there's some very, there's some very simple ways to uh, get you across the finish line there. Very simple ways. Okay. That's great. And, um, like I said, uh, I'm, I'm at your website. I'm at the website for Michigan Conservative Coalition. There is a contact tab there, so you don't have to remember anything, and you can email and ask for this information, correct? That's and correct. you guys will help. Great. Okay. Yes. So that's what a delegate is. What does a delegate does? Okay. So what are the responsibilities? Um, they're kind of like the camp leaders for the party in their precincts and uh, you know what what pretty much what a precinct delegate does there's there's no formal requirements it's totally up to how involved someone wants to be and I think many people once they see uh, what an influence they have they you know if they're if they're gonna take the initiative to become a precinct delegate it's because they're concerned about the direction of our country. So they're going to want to be more involved. Um, I think like the thing that is like most important is people will go to a county convention approximately four times, four local meetings in a two year term. So it's not a whole lot of time at the very least for great conservatives to, to go to these county conventions and at the county conventions, you're going to need to, uh, you know, it, it, it was terrible through COVID for new precinct delegates. Now at least we're back, we're meeting with each other. You're starting to know where where people stand on issues. So you know who to vote for and other people know to vote for you. So if you run because you want to go to the state convention, uh, that's that's a that's a really good thing. We want more conservative precinct delegates at the state conventions because we as precinct delegates actually elect uh, to be our candidates, our Republican candidates, some very important positions. One of them being Secretary of State. It's the precinct delegates at the state convention who decide who the Republican Secretary of State candidate is. My friend Joe Lennard from Wyandotte, um, he's the one who informed me of that while I was interviewing Christina Caramo. So oh. here I'm encouraging people to vote for her in the primary and I'm showing my ignorance. So that's one of the reasons you're on here today. Yeah, and, and the other uh, position that's very important that we have coming up is Attorney General. 
and you know, it's like, you know, we we have probably one of the most partisan attorney generals in the entire <laughs> country. Uh, and so, you know, it would be a good thing to get a strong candidate, a strong conservative in there uh, to replace her. So it's the precinct delegates that uh, have that opportunity to make that selection. So folks, if you wanna see Matt DiPerno on the ticket or Christina Caramo, then this is the way to do it. And this is the way to have more influence to do it. Am I correct? Yes, absolutely. This is, okay. this is, this is well, I, you know, I, I'm gonna get into the weeds a little bit here. Uh, and, I, and I apologize, this is a very unusual circumstance. It's an unusual year in that um, the Michigan Republican Party is switching something. And the, the intention is good. They're, they're having, normally we would elect uh, the, the two candidates for these positions in a in a August convention. However, um, it's this administration realized that we have a big disadvantage. You have the Democrats and they are not, they are selecting their candidates that are running for Secretary of State, Attorney General in the spring. So they have all the those so then once they have those candidates, those candidates have till from then until November to fundraise and get their name out and they're not running against anyone else in it mm -hmm. for for the uh, for the seat at the convention it's a huge advantage so the party has decided to do a nominating convention so that we could do the same thing and that nominating convention is in May um, Christina Caramo, I, I'm not sure about Matt DiPerno, but I know that Christine Caramo uh, supports this idea because it's it only makes sense. Once the Democrats learn that the Republican Party was doing this, they are now trying to move their nominating convention up even earlier <laughs> because they know that it's an advantage. So the long and the short- They favor thing, early voting, we notice. They favor yeah, early voting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so- I'm mentioning this because because of these unusual circumstances, the the precinct delegates that file by May third and get elected in August will will not have that selection. They will oh. not be selecting Secretary of State and Attorney General. Unfortunately, it's the present set of precinct delegates that were, were elected a year ago last August that will make that selection. But, but that's no reason to sit it out. That's no reason not to no, get involved now. Absolutely no. not, because um, precinct delegates also select the candidates for the Supreme Court justices, State Board of Education, university boards, and even presidential electors uh, on those years. Um, they they elect chair and co-chair of the party and the six vice chairs. So you know, by no means be discouraged because of these two positions, because there's just so many other important positions that we need precinct delegates that, you know, love this country and want to, uh, you know, want us to help straighten things out. We need those precinct delegates to run for these positions and get involved with the party. Okay. Um, 
See, now, a friend of mine just texted me and asked me to ask you about hardworking Republicans being used to fill convention seats in place of precinct delegates. What would that mean? Well, uh, so at this nominating convention, in order, the nominating convention is a state convention, right? So we have to have a county convention. It's about two weeks prior to that. And at that county convention, uh, counties will be able to elevate people who uh, that reside in a precinct that has an open seat, they will be able to like make that, uh, just vote to have that person become a precinct delegate based on a hardworking Republican rule. And uh, so, and they can do that up to 15% of the number of precinct delegates in, uh, in, uh, in that county. So it's a good opportunity. I think it was a little bit of a um, a little bit of a compromise because uh, you know I like to think the party realized that you know it, it's really shortchanging the precinct delegates who wanted to be involved in the secretary of state selection and the attorney general. So at least this is a way that the counties can still infuse quite a few new precinct delegates that um, will be in favor. Uh, that really want to, you know, participate in that nominating convention. Okay, so we have about, well, yes, you did. Thank you. And uh, we have about three minutes left. I want to once again mention the Michigan Conservative Coalition. It has a website. Just start Google, start typing it. Google will finish it in for you. And our guest is Marion Sheridan, who's speaking about uh, precinct delegates. And we're going to have her back. And if you missed any of this or kind of went over your head and you wished you could hear it again, there's the podcast. Go to whamradio.com and look at the podcast page and click on the tab for Your American Heritage. Go to Google and uh, subscribe. And um, yeah, I thought I heard somebody talking for a second. It might have been me. So, uh, Marion, uh, will redistricting, which we're expecting, affect precinct delegates? Um, it could. It absolutely could and probably will some precinct delegates, not all of them. But some, uh, so you know that that whole thing is such a mess. Um, I, I think it's going to end up in the federal courts. Uh, we'll just ha- we'll just have to see. But I just I just want to close then with the fact that um, you know there there's a certain process to go through, and certainly you know there's there's people out there that will help people get through that process. Uh, I think after the first of the year, there'll be a lot more precinct delegate recruitment events. And uh, in the past, we have had what we call mock conventions. We'll be having mock conventions again, which help take precinct delegates through the convention process so that they can understand what they're going to be seeing when they when they attend these conventions. Sort of like a practice session, huh? A practice so there's, session. There's no reason to be afraid of doing this. Is that right? There's support. There's encouragement, and there's a good reason to get involved. Absolutely, absolutely. We need we need to uh, redirect uh, the direction of our party back to the right. So uh, especially, especially when we see some of the things Mike Shirky or Shirky's been doing, and uh, this whole uh, convention, not convention of the states, but the uh, oh my goodness, the wanting a popular vote. Popular vote, and, yeah. Yes. 
Best Derek's stuff. telling me the music has started. I don't hear it, but I think that's what he's going to type. The music has started. Marianne Sheridan, thank you very much for joining us today. We're going to have you back and go into this in a little bit more depth and follow up. But thank you for joining us today on Your American Heritage. Great. God bless you, and thank you for all your efforts. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Bye. We were made to be courageous. We were made to lead the way. We could be the generation that finally breaks the chains. We were made to be courageous. We were made to be courageous. We were warriors on the front lines, standing unafraid. Boy, how apt that is. We are warriors. There's a war. There's a battle going on, and we need to be courageous. Love it. Thanks for returning to Your American Heritage. I am your host, Ed Bondarenka. Before we get deep into our second half, I'd like to remind you that tonight we set our clocks back an hour before we go to bed so we can get to church on time. And change your smoke alarm batteries, too, okay? Thursday is Veterans Day. Veterans stepped up to fight for this country. Step up to thank them. But as a vet, let me tell you, most of us consider it an honor to have served this country. So uh, we're going to take a call real quick from, as if it could be real quick, from Joe Lennard. And uh, regarding the last uh, uh, person we had on, Marion Sheridan, about precinct delegates, and Joe's going to make it real quick. Joe? Yeah, well, I'm glad you reminded us about the clocks because I forgot. I, I might have missed it, but I think Marion forgot to mention the precinct delegate affidavit filing deadline is May 4. But yeah, she as mentioned you discussed it. with her, wait, precinct delegate uh, precincts could get screwed up as part of the MICRC process. I'm on the Wing 12 committee and the 12th district committee. We usually have a delegate sign-up gathering event. We don't have the details for ours yet, but likely February or March will do that because we need to see how things shake out. Sign up in March or preferably April. Wait hmm. just to be safe okay. and be sure that your precinct is going to be correct on your affidavit. Okay, great. Thanks, Joe. Appreciate that All call. All right, take care, Have brother. A great day. Love you. All right, bye. So uh, that was Joe Lennard, uh, who I actually added up all the time that he gets on Wham Radio a week via call-ins, and he has more airtime than I do, uh, not counting moment of clarity. So <laughs> there's that. Now we're next on to the the David Coleman report. <laughs> so joining us is fan favorite. <laughs> Friend of the show, David Coleman. I mean, I, I talk to people and say, oh, I really like David Coleman. And I mean, who wouldn't? And you don't even get to see his face. I mean, he's a handsome guy. But uh, we wanted to talk to Dave about a couple of issues today. And uh, one that's probably foremost on a lot of people's minds is the jab and the response to, well, let's say there are a number of issues going on here. There's the OSHA requirements that I think have just been finalized and then the date has been postponed a bit because they don't want to upset people before Christmas. And then there's also corporate responses 
which were due to a threat by the Biden administration. And then there's state and local. It's all kind of confusing, but we're going to focus on OSHA right now, aren't we, Dave? Be glad to. It's good to see you, Ed. And I have to question your eyesight after some of your comments, but uh, it's good to be with you. <laughs> yeah, good. Thanks for joining. So what, to your mind, what are the OSHA requirements right now? Well, it's, uh, I, I won't... Uh, say that I've read all 490 pages at this point, but I have looked at the various sections and summaries and, and the things that are important for people to know. And what's really interesting is, is that this OSHA rule, which is an emergency rule, and we'll get into that in a minute, mm -hmm. uh, did go through the normal process to be approved as an administrative rule, but it's an emergency rule and it has exemptions in place not only for the vaccine, but exemptions from testing and exemptions from masking. So it's really kind of interesting. I'm, I'm not sure why uh, those things were put in there, but I, I'm reading it right here in front of me. Here's what it says. Um, and, and really, it's an acknowledgement by the Biden administration that there are federal laws like Title VII, you know, dealing with employment, the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, which provides protections to employees. So I think they have to acknowledge this, but I'm surprised they did <laughs> as much as they ignore the law. But here's, mm -hmm. what the, yeah. here's what the rule says. Workers may be entitled to a reasonable accommodation from their employer, absent an undue hardship. And that's always going to be the key fight. If an employer says it's an undue hardship to give an exemption, they don't have to. So that'll be the legal battles. You're gonna see legal fights over that all over the place. But if you're an employer and you don't want to require the vaccine for your employees, and you have a number of employees who are gonna leave and walk off the job if you do it, uh, you don't have to claim an undue hardship. You can grant their exemptions. And there are basically two. It says, workers may request a reasonable accommodation from a vaccination or from wearing a mask based on the ADA. So that would cover basically medical uh, issues, medical concerns. Then secondly, it says, also workers can uh, ask for an exemption from a vaccination testing or wearing a mask if it, if, if it conflicts with their sincerely held religious belief, practice, or observance. So this, uh, this is like a huge hole in this whole thing. I, Honestly, I don't see why the media is talking about it as a mandate with these kinds of exemptions in there, because you could drive a truck through it and employers can use these, grant their employees medical or religious exemptions, and they don't have to be vaccinated. What's it take to start a religion in the, in the state of Michigan? Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, I'm not going down that road, man. <laughs> I okay, started well three myself but i i had to back out you know so <laughs> okay just curious you know i mean i could i could have a huge cult following i think if i got in early so all right so there are these uh exemptions and and frankly i'm concerned i'm not going to take the jab i refuse to i might be mean an early retirement and it might mean a number of things but uh i'm not taking the chance of getting harmed and besides that i have a firm religious belief that God created me, uh, all the warts and everything, with a certain genetic code, and I don't want it altered. And then he doesn't want me 
giving myself an opportunity to have a heart attack. He doesn't want, you know, there's certain religious strictures about attempted suicide. So, you know, I mean, I think I'm covered there. I'm kind of curious since uh, the masks and, you know, the masks, obviously I don't want to be identified with a certain Middle Eastern cult that covers the face of their women. So there is that. I don't want to be mistaken for one of them. And then the having somebody jam something up my nose, well, that's self-defense. So, well, you're right. right. So, yeah. So, so this rule that has been put in place on an emergency basis—it's only there for six months. It can be renewed for six months, but it's not a permanent rule. Um, says you can get an exemption for vaccination, for testing and for wearing a mask. You can get it for all three if it's based on a religious objection. So, uh, for example, we're getting ready to sue Ascension Hospital. They know it, we've sent a demand letter to them on behalf of a lot of employees of Ascension because they're not accepting any religious exemptions. Well, actually now we can use the social rule because Ascension is violating President Biden's Ascension rule by not giving these exemptions. That's why I'm really kind of shocked at what I see here in this rule and the way we're going to be able to use it. So it's going to be interesting to see how employers respond to this, but they better think twice before they just start carte blanche denying everybody and losing, you know, 20% of their workforce. Uh, these businesses had better be careful. <laughs> I, I, I don't know where the corporation that I work for stands. I, I hope they do the right thing and stand up for their employees. Actually, their corporate motto is very similar to the golden rule. And they call it the golden rule, in fact. You know, do unto others as you'd have do unto yourself. So we'll see how they stand there. Um, I'd hate to leave, but uh, you know, this is to me, this is a moral stand. It's not just a fear of the jab. It's it's a a religious concern of mine, but it's also a patriotic concern of mine. We have a constitutional right not to have stuff shoved in our body. Now, is anybody taking that approach? Sure, you're gonna see a lot of challenges to this rule. And there are basically two kinds of challenges, really. One is dealing with the overall rule itself, that it's violative of the laws that are in place of how you promulgate rules and that sort of thing. It violates the constitution. It also violates um, the, the whole concept of an emergency. I mean, they've taken three or four months minimum to write <laughs> this rule, and now they're not gonna implement it for two more months. So, I mean, you're talking a half a year. What's the emergency for this rule? I mean, it doesn't well, make sense at all. Especially since Merck came back and I understand they've sort of like rebranded ivermectin into their their miracle yeah. drug, you know. <laughs> yeah, they could charge a hundred bucks a pill for instead of just taking ivermectin, I know. Yeah, and so, you know, you'd think there'd be a rationale to say, wait a minute, we have a better response to this than, you know, this illegal route, you know, this this and so are you aware of any organizations who have filed suit? Do you guys like have a back channel where you say who's going to handle it and sure. friend we, of the court? As I was saying, there's really two ways it's going to be attacked. The first way, as I just described, the second way will be individuals who are being denied exemptions will then file suit and we'll be representing people if that happens. But back to the first challenge, which is really the biggest challenge that the whole rule itself is illegal and unconstitutional. Uh, there was a, a filing in the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals directly by ADF on behalf of the Daily Wire, you know, Ben Shapiro's group, mm -hmm. 
And you can file to challenge an administrative rule directly in the Court of Appeals. You can bypass the trial court and the district courts. So they, they're from Tennessee, and we're in the Sixth Circuit here in Michigan with Tennessee. And so it's our district, and the Court of Appeals, the Sixth Circuit, now has a case challenging this rule the very day it was issued this week. It was the same day they filed their petition. That's so, encouraging. And I think I just read 26 attorneys general around the, around the country have filed a lawsuit mm -hmm. against this rule. So, yeah, there's going to be huge challenges to this. And if, if the whole rule gets knocked out, well, then it doesn't matter at that point. But until then, you know, businesses should be taking a look at this and, frankly, should be granting religious and medical accommodations. And if they don't, People should be bringing lawsuits. There should be an avalanche of lawsuits over this. And, uh, you know, we got to stand up and start fighting back on this, this ridiculous affront to our freedom. Now you told me you're working 56 hours a week, so you don't have time to take a case from me, I take it. I'd have to find somebody else. Well, if you call, I'll just say, Ed who? I don't know. <laughs> No, we, we, you know, obviously we're getting inundated with calls and we only have, you know, limited resources. But for you, Ed, if you call, we'll, we'll uh, chat. <laughs> okay, thank you. So I, I just want to review here. There have been a number of, oh my goodness, there's, first there's OSHA. Before OSHA, there was the, the Biden threat, you know, and then it's, that Southwest Airlines operated under, which wasn't the... OSHA was just a, some edict that government uh, uh, agencies and people who deal with the government, even in a tangential way, have to give the get you know have their employees get the jab. And you know, there's some pushback to that by employees. Uh, actually, a lot of pushback to that. We saw Southwest Airlines, American Airlines, uh, Delta seemed to handle it by giving an exemption that said if you're willing to pay $200 more per month for your insurance and wear a mask and maybe do testing then we'll let you stay, which I got to say is like you know, better than a sharp stick in the eye or quitting altogether. But there are very many thrusts of this forcing people get the jab thing, right? Right, right. And you got to remember that there is another edict for, you know, mandating vaccines. And that was President Biden's executive order that he issued a few months ago. And that's for all federal employees, except, of course, for Congress and except for mm -hmm. the post office. But military and pretty much anybody else that works for the federal government is required, I think, by December 8th to have the vaccine. And uh, and they extended that to anybody who contracts with the federal government. So if you're a company that you're a, a contractor that signs agreements and you supply services to the federal government, you have to have all of your employees vaccinated that's different than this osha rule okay right and that's what and so a lot of companies were saying well we know the social rule is coming out and here's what president biden did so we're just going to start you know requiring our employees to do it but now the osha rule has come out and it's totally different than what president biden's executive order was and as i said it provides for all these exemptions so it's really going to be interesting. And we are talking with some uh, companies that are federal contractors and looking at lawsuits against the federal government there because that's government action clearly, you know, by President Biden. So you have First Amendment and other constitutional issues you can raise. 
Right. And so that's that's actually what happened with Southwest. They did some government contract work. Right. And so they told their employees that instead of standing up for their employees, standing up to the government and maintaining them while they sued or while they were involved in a lawsuit, which is a path that these corporations could take. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what would you do? Would they get like an injunction or a stay or how? That's Sure, that's what they'd have to do is file a suit, ask for a uh, temporary restraining order and then a preliminary injunction while the litigation is pending. And uh, it's very similar to our Western Michigan University case for the athletes who were required to get the vaccine mandates there or be kicked off their teams. Well, we got an injunction to stop that because of the constitutional issues that were involved in it. And uh, we've just uh, resolved that case. In fact, that's we're going to be settling that this week. There's going to be a stipulated order for a permanent injunction in that case that's going to be entered. So um, it, it's the same arguments that you could make against President Biden's executive order. And I hope a lot of people sue <laughs> and use Amen. their their voice. <clears throat> and remember, you know, there are other things you can do besides suing <laughs> people, you know. You can oh, we don't want to get into shooting people, okay? We don't want... Yeah, and there's all sorts of things you can do, yeah. Yeah, okay, well, we don't want civil war right now. I, I realize, you know, an armed insurrection is... I'm, I'm talking about using the legal means with the ballot box, organizing into, mm -hmm. you know, groups that oppose these things, voting for, you know, putting pressure on, on the Congress people and others that, that make these decisions and let them know they're going to get voted out of office if they keep this up, like what just happened this past Tuesday. Exactly. Hey, folks, 734-822-1600. If you have any uh, questions for David Coleman of uh, Coleman Legal Group, is that right? Did I get it right? And yep. Great Lakes Justice, Justice. Center. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Doesn't always roll off the tongue. Huh? But uh, if you have any questions, feel free to call Dave because I think Dave's going to stay over for a moment of clarity. There's another topic that I don't think we have time enough to give full justice to, and it's a very important topic. Uh, I wasn't aware of it until I talked to him about an hour ago when we were discussing what we would talk about on the show. So you'll want to stay tuned for that unless we do start getting into it because nobody calls or we run out of other things to say about OSHA or uh, legal minutiae in the state of Michigan. Derek's picking up the phone. Joe, I, I didn't let you call twice, Joe, so let's see who it is. Oh, dead air silence. So you watched the game last week, right? Yes, I have to admit I did. I'm a state fan, so we were happy with the outcome, but I thought both teams played hard, they played well. It was a credit to, to both universities, I felt. Well, that's good. Yeah, a lot of discord in your family over that, I take it. Yeah, my dad played at U my dad played football at U of M. So we're we're split, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> yeah, when I was there, I was in South Quad and I was on the same floor as most of the football players too. So uh, I have that tangential relation to Michigan football, and then that's about it. <laughs> So Derek is talking to somebody who doesn't seem to be a caller to the show because he hasn't. Yes. So anyways, uh, what else do we got that you want to talk about before we go much further into the next topic? I could just mention briefly, you know, as I was saying, for people to know what's going on, organize, be educated yourself, read and research yourself, learn what's going on. For example, critical race theory. 
the big lie right now from the other side, if you watch CNN and all the other major networks, is nobody's teaching CRT in the public schools. <laughs> what are you talking about? This is a false, this is fake, fake news, you know, stuff. That is a bald-faced lie. And if you ever want to look into this a little more, there's a teacher from Indiana who uh, just put out, he's been on the news uh, on the conservative side in the last few days, and he presents evidence to show that they are exactly teaching critical race theory. And know what it is. You know, people say, well, what is critical race theory? You don't even know what it is. Well, what it basically stands for is the proposition that there are two groups of people, those who are oppressed and those who are the oppressors. And you're either in one group or the other, and then they divide those two groups by race. And if you're white, you're an oppressor. If you're a minority, you're oppressed, and it goes from there. It's an evil, evil theory. Yeah, a rose by any other name. Just because it doesn't say CRT on the cover doesn't mean it isn't there in the contents. So yeah. let's talk to James from Ann Arbor. I think that's who, yes, James from Ann Arbor, as soon as I can get Derek's attention. Hello? Hello? <laughs> oh, hey, I can can't hear, hear you. Say it again. Can you hear me? Yes, I can now. Thank you. Yeah, uh, I just wanted to talk about, like, the animal sources of the viruses. I think that's something that's kind of not been talked about in the media. A lot of this stuff, you know, it originally came from China, and there's been interesting things going on in China in the last five to ten years. They, they've kind of uh, started, like, the, the leader there, Xi Jinping, he, he started embracing traditional medicine over there. And that's where the, remember, there's a billion people, over a billion people in China. It's where they chop up all these wild animals that they kind of poach from different places, and they eat them, and they make them into potions. And a lot of these carry different diseases, you know, like uh, coronavirus and other diseases. And they yeah, also but James, have become a James, I don't want to I didn't want to get into sources right now of the of the virus. So we're looking at the legal aspects and the the reactions. Well, it, uh, we're pretty I'm certain that it to. came there from the a, Wuhan a part, lab. There's a part of here that kind of crosses into religious and legal lines, if, if you go ahead and let me finish. Okay, go ahead, real quick. Yeah, well, the original vaccine was made by this guy named Edward Jenner, and it was made from a cowpox, uh, a cowpox blister. And he took the virus from the, the cowpox and he injected it in somebody's right arm. Now, you got to remember, all these animals, all these uh, vaccines are made from animal viruses. So Edward Jenner, when he made the first smallpox virus, he was taking the mark of a cow or the pox mark of a beast and injecting it into somebody's right arm. And so all these viruses or these vaccines when they make them they make them from animal viruses or the pox right. mark of a beast and so you're taking the pox mark of a beast <laughs> the mark right of the beast i get it that's good that's really good all right thanks so james the, the i appreciate need it to get on board with us mark of the beast first vaccine made from the pox mark of a cow which is also a beast that's you pretty cute. In fact, I've told people that this is a beast is an insane. The beginning of the mark of the beast. The church has got to say that, or people aren't going to get an exemption. Okay, great. I appreciate that, James. Thank you very much. I don't know if we're going to have time. I wanted to talk to Lemon, and uh, we've got like thirty seconds left. I'm sorry, Lemon. Uh, folks, stay over for a moment of clarity. Uh, Pastor Rick and I are going to be talking to Dave Coleman some more about a different topic. It's uh, this is very important, very important to us. And uh, as far as James was saying about the mark of the beast, I find that pretty interesting. I see beasts as being unintelligent, insensate, insensate Chris, uh, characters, 
And these characters uh, uh, are unthinking, dumb ox beasts, right? And people who walk around uninformed with a mask on their face remind me of people who are carrying the mark of a beast. So along those same lines. So the music is starting. Um, sometimes the music plays real long, so I don't mind talking a little bit. But nonetheless, thank you for joining us today. Please stay tuned to stay tuned for Moment of Clarity. God bless you. God bless America. States of America is called a Christian nation, Christian nation, Christian nation. It's time for a moment of clarity with your host, Pastor Richard Dietering. Let us pray that this nation does come to a moment of clarity. Faith, faith, faith politics, 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 history, history, and current events. Current events. Current events. And now, your host, Pastor Rick. Pastor Rick will be joining you momentarily, but in the meantime, I'm Derek Stone with a moment on sports part one. The Atlanta Braves won the World Series championship this past Tuesday after annihilating the Houston Astros 7 0 in game six. Houston had a major problem in World Series most valuable player Jorge Soler, who crushed a three run moonshot in the third inning. The Braves tacked on three more runs two innings later after Dansby Swanson belted a two-run four-bagger and Soler scored on a double by Freddie Freeman, who smashed a solo tater in the seventh inning. Max Freed pitched an excellent game, as evidenced by his four hits allowed and six strikeouts in six innings of work. Tyler Matzek and not the fresh prince Will Smith came out of the Atlanta bullpen to seal the fourth title in franchise history. Now here's your Moment of Clarity host, Pastor Rick Dietering. Yes, I'm back. Hey, Derek, do you watch? Do you watch? Do you watch The Masked Singer at all? No. Wow, that's going to be an interesting conversation then, because I have nothing to talk about the rest of the show. How about you, Ed? You ever watch that show? And I can't hear Ed at all. He's totally, he's totally gone. And well, folks, if you if you watch The Masked Singer at all. I'm going to give you some spoiler alerts. I'm going to give you a few of my thoughts on who some of the some of the uh, characters are. I'm going to tell you right now the the mallard, which by the way is not a mallard, it's a, it's a wood duck, but they call him mallard, is going to be Willie Robinson. You just wait and find that out, is it? I'm sure. The 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 heart, the queen of hearts, that's going to be Jewel. Guarantee it. I I recognize the voices, so I hope I spoiled that for you. So then you can wa start watching something much more important, uh, like. The news. No, forget that. You're better off watching fantasy because you don't get anything on the news that's good for you. Well, at least not anymore. Hey, joining me is my co-host, Ed Bondarenko. Ed, can you can you now speak into your microphone and have the audience hear you? Yeah, I unmuted it because I cleared my throat and I just didn't want to do that to the audience. By the way, uh, 
I don't know if you guys saw on your end, Phil was trying to join us. Um, I didn't answer it because I was afraid I might screw something up, that being Derek's job. So uh, maybe Phil can try again. Yeah, that'd be good. Um, hey, we got a, a guest with us. I'm gonna let you introduce our guest uh, and uh, the the subject matter because you you kind of like uh, talk, we talked about, about it before your show and I said, it sounds like a great topic. Um, yeah, yeah, since Phil's not on yet, we can jump into that to talking to your host, who you are going to introduce, because he's a lawyer, and uh, I have never met a lawyer that uh, didn't try to warm his hands by putting his without putting his hands in my pocket somehow. So, well, you no, got I'm him to smile, kidding. so that's good. Or he's or he's grinning at happy memories, one or the other. So, <laughs> you know, what's, you know, it's yeah. cold out when 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 the lawyer has his hands in his own pocket, right? Yeah, that's politicians, but go ahead. So, yes, and joining us, and I hope he stays with us now, is our friend David Coleman of Coleman Legal Group and uh, Great Lakes Justice Center. And I keep wanting to say Justice League. And, of course, um, um, Salt and Light Global Initiative, which uh, uh, all three organizations are a force for good in America in the legal community. So Dave puts to lie a lot of the... Uh, the stereotypes of lawyers, and I'm 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 happy to know that about him. I'm happy to know him. And we talked on my show about OSHA uh, requirements, mandates, and the like. And we had a second topic that I didn't think we would get to, and I mentioned it to you, and you were gracious enough to uh, let Dave come on and talk about this because I think it's very important. It's something very close to your heart, a lot of our listeners' heart, and that is this case of. Uh, Karungi versus Yalu. Now, I'm sure everybody knows this. They've seen it in headlines. Karungi versus Yalu. And so uh, I'm going to let Dave tell us about the background of uh, Karungi versus. Before he does, you you brought up something very interesting to me. You say he's part of the Justice League. He's part of the Justice League. (laughs) Are you actually Aquaman, Dave? I I just. (laughs) No. No, I hate swimming. All right. All right, Dave, tell us something about this case involving these frozen embryos and why it's important. Yeah, this case has been around now for about four or five years, and it's been up and down the appellate courts twice. It involved a couple who were not married, but they had a child, and the child had sickle cell anemia. And they had, through in vitro processes, uh, created 10 embryos, around 10, I think it is, and then they were put in stasis or frozen. And so they're there, and but they're embryos. So fertilization has occurred. Um, if you believe life begins at conception, there's some lives that are just sitting there waiting to continue to grow and come to being. And so the what happened is the mother wanted to take one of the embryos, have another child, because there's a procedure you can do through getting stem cells through an umbilical cord of a sibling that a lot of times will actually cure sickle cell anemia. And so that she wanted to do that to give their living daughter a chance um, to do that, plus to have another child. She just wanted to have another child. The father objected, led to litigation. Our client has uh, offered to waive any child support or any obligations that the father might have, but he still is protesting and fighting this. The courts so far at the trial court level have treated this as a property issue. Um, you know, it, it's a, a property dispute. 
and had ruled that uh, unless the father consented, the mother could not bring one of the embryos, you know, to uh, full term and have another child. So it went up to the Court of Appeals the second time now, the Court of Appeals has sent it back again and told the trial court this time very clearly. In fact, here's the language. It says, their earlier decision and the Court of Appeals was not precluding the trial court from addressing the issue of the life status of the embryo, which is what my client has been arguing all along. So you can see how that could have some pretty broad-based implications if a court were to determine that an embryo is life that's worthy of protection. And we can get into a lot of, there are a lot of statutes, people may not realize this, but all throughout Michigan law, embryos, fetuses, you know, preborn children are protected under the law in, in a multitude of ways other than for their life. I mean, it's the most hypocritical, crazy thing in the law, I think, that's out there right now. But for example, if you're, uh, uh, if there's an estate and this preborn baby, this embryo, is an heir, a potential heir of the estate, the court will protect that child's interests for, for its property in an estate. So it treats the embryo as a person for the purposes of their property in an estate. There are wrongful death statutes. If somebody kills a pregnant woman and the baby dies in her womb, they could be charged criminally with, uh, with uh, criminal violations. There are laws against um, uh, doing research on embryos. There's all kinds of laws all through our, our codes that treat embryos as persons. The only place they're not treated as persons is for their own life. And so that's what we're doing here. And now the Court of Appeals has said the trial court can determine what is the life status of these frozen embryos. And I think you can all see how, how wide of an impact that case could have. So we have now taken the case over at Great Lakes Justice Center. Unfortunately, the attorney, Dan Marsh, who is the attorney for Ms. Karungi, um, all the way up till now, just recently passed away very tragically, came ill and died very quickly at a young age. So we're very sorry for, for his passing. He was a real warrior. Um, but now we're stepping in. We're going to be representing Ms. Karungi. We just filed our brief about a week ago. And now the court is going to decide what it's going to do at this point, whether it's going to have a trial, have evidence, make a ruling. We don't know at this point. We're waiting to hear from the judge. So as property, if they were property, then the embryonic cells are like in a joint bank account. Is that how it's being treated? Yeah, absolutely. Which is really outrageous when you think about where's, it. Where's I mean, the title? Who has the title to these children? I mean, I understand how if two people owned a house and they divorced, separated. Who has the title on these embryos? Right. And, and the court has said it's joint, that it's property and it's joint. Our, our position is, no, this is a person entitled to protection under Michigan law. And in fact, there's actually U.S. Supreme Court precedent that supports our position, believe it or not, even with the Roe v. Wade decision. The Webster versus Reproductive Health uh, Services case from back in 1989, our Supreme Court said states may make a judgment about when life begins. And so the issue there becomes, but if it's dealing with regulating abortions, then there might be some restrictions on it. But the Supreme Court said you can determine when life begins. 
Well, in our situation here, we're not talking about an abortion. We're talking about a mom who wants to have a child. And in our law right now, if a woman, once fertilization occurs, under our laws right now, whether you agree with them or not, under Supreme Court precedent, the mother has the choice of whether or not to bring that baby to term. Well, our client wants to bring the baby to term. Fertilization has occurred. The choice was made when that was done. There is no choice now, we believe, under the law that should be giving the father veto rights over this and vetoing a possible cure for his daughter. And we believe that uh, hopefully the courts will see it that way. And we're ready to, to appeal this one all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court if we have to. I have two questions. Uh, the first question would be, why isn't this a custody battle rather than a property battle? That's from everything a, you just said. That's a great question. And that's actually what the court said, that in conjunction with determining the life status of the embryo, the court went on to say, and also the court can determine whether child custody laws apply. And of course, we're going to argue that they do, you know, in this situation. And that's why our clients should prevail. And the next question, which is probably the same question, maybe I'm just wording it different. I see it as two diff different questions, is if the, these embryos are co-owned, and I'm doing the air quotes here, like property and everything else. Um, I remember not too long ago that if a couple had children or if a couple broke up, to use your example, Ed, uh, they just went their separate ways and whoever left whatever behind left it behind. Why does the father have any say in this whatsoever at this point? Because he freely donated the, 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 the sperm towards these embryos and then walked away. Um, why, why she wants them, he doesn't. Why is there even a court case even as far as property goes on this? Who's been paying the storage bills? Our client. And that's the other thing. Whoa. She spent over $40,000. The father's contributed nothing towards Whoa. that. And, that's my case. Point. And, and these are excellent questions. And, the point, and that's exactly right. Once a child so, is conceived, and typically it would be in the womb of the mother, the embryo would be there. The father can't come in and say, you must get an abortion. You know, I don't want a child right now. You, I mean, everybody would look at you like, well, you're crazy. That's not the status of their law. Under our laws right now, the mother makes the choice. And if she decides to bring that child to, you know, to a full term, that's her choice. Because the father's choice ended when fertilization occurred. Now, once a child's born, then other obligations arise and rights of fathers at that point. Now, again, I'm not debating whether that's right or should parents should right. be kept out of that. But that's just the status of our law right now. So for a court to rule that Ms. Karungi can't carry um, one of these embryos to term because it's property is unbelievable to me. And then so, why isn't the court at some point making him pay at least half of that $40,000 that your client has paid in? Well, I, you know, that's not an issue right now, but uh, that's an interesting question. But, you know, I didn't realize we're back 100 years ago. It lists like Dred Scott, you know. We've had right. prior cases where minorities were treated as property and they didn't end so well, you know, <laughs> no, Again, this is not a prop. We're going to push this case because our client has the right now that the embryo is there. Fertilization has occurred to make the choice and she's made her choice. The court should honor that. And that's what we're going to do. 
Yeah, and I'm not trying to make light of this. My my point is is where the courts in the past have has basically found in the father's favor, if I'm understanding this right, where she hasn't been able to do it. At that point, why didn't the court say you owe her twenty thousand dollars? Well, I can't answer that. I don't know that it yeah. ever came up. I, you know, I, we weren't on the case back then, so I don't know. Right, right. I, I'm just curious. It just seems like the the mother has done everything she could to make sure that her children lived, even in, you know, I I've taken some medicine in every book I've read on embryos and told me that that child that embryo is a child in the earliest form of development. Even in the medical books at University of Michigan tells us that. Right. So. All it needs is time and nourishment, and it will grow into a human being. And, and fact, with enough oh, time and oh, nourishment. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I'm sorry. You just said something that I, I must disapprove of or disagree with, because this met this all this conversation about life and when life begins, and then obviously I mean well I don't know what the definition of life is. It's, it used to be it eats, it moves, it it replicates, you know, but. That doesn't seem to be enough to stop it, but either it is a human being as an embryo or it doesn't, or it goes into a human being. And that's part of the slippery slope of this argument. When is right. it a human being? Right. Well, right. I, I, I don't, agree. let me, Dave, just real quick. And I don't disagree with that, but we, we are constantly growing. Um, and like I was just going to say to Dave before, uh, before you made your statement, is that with enough time, he will grow into be a 90-year-old human being okay. um, with enough time and, and effort. And the child okay. is, by, by, by medicine, by, by medical text, from the second it's conceived, is a child in the most earliest form of development. DNA is there. Everything is there to turn that child from a, a baby child in the embryo state up to a 90-year-old man. Everything is present to do that. So. Right. So that's what I meant was that obviously it's a human being at conception from our point of view. Mm -hmm. It can grow into a fully functioning adult human being. You know, that's all. I just meant it in that context, of course. I'm sure you did. Yeah. Yeah. Is there any chance that this might devolve back into a property dispute given we talked about the rent fees? Well, I don't know. We're we're not raising the rent fees right now. The issue is okay. our client wants custody of these embryos so that she can make the choice of bringing more children, uh, bringing these children to full term uh, that already exist. And so, you know, that's going to be the issue we're dealing with right now. And she's waived. She's waived any any request for child support. So yes, yes. There's that. All right. So, how do you see this? I can think of a lot of different ways where this could affect the abortion question in so many different ways at the national level if it goes up. Where do you see this going? Well, a lot of it depends on, you know, what happens with uh, the decisions that the courts will make from this point forward. If the court once again declines to rule on the life status of the embryo, then we're going to be appealing. Uh, if the court does rule on the life status and says it's not life, you know, it's not a human being, we're going to appeal it. If the court rules on the life status that it is a human being and therefore custody laws apply and they you know, would almost have to grant custody to our client at that point, um, then I'm sure the other side is going to appeal. So I think either way, 
the trial judge is going to have to make a decision and it's going to get appealed up. And all I can tell you is we will take it all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court if we have to on our side. I don't know what the other side would do or how far they would push it. But that's, let me, our, let me, that's where we'll go. Let me rephrase that question. Here we are in November. The Christmas trees are already in the stores. You're seeing Christmas commercials. So on your Christmas, Christmas list, what would be the ideal outcome that you could see this going to through, through the end? Well, that the court the finds court. that the court finds that the embryo is life that's worthy of protection, just like it is in every other area of our law under Michigan statutes, and then grant custody to our client. Um, I don't see how the court could grant custody to a parent who wants to kill the embryo. <laughs> that would seem to me to be, by definition, not in the best interests of that child. So, I, you know, I mean, a court can do whatever it wants. Okay. But that just seems to me to be counterintuitive, that a court would give custody of a child to a parent that wants to kill it. So I, I don't see right. that happening. But if it did, well, yeah, I mean, that's what we want, is we want custody for our client. She can have another child or two or three, whatever she wants to do. And uh, that's what we're seeking. I'm trying, I don't want to sound, I'm going to try to think like a, like a progressive here for a second. Mm. <laughs> And, and pretend that this is a property issue. I don't see it that way at all, but pretend it's a property issue. If I had an old car that is also my wife's name and I want to just go junk it and make 50 bucks and she wants to keep the car and she would give me the 50 bucks or the 40,000, whatever it is. Um, where, where is the uh, where's the conflict coming from? I, I don't understand why this gentleman is uh is fighting this so hard if he is not being held in any way shape or form um i don't want to say liable but uh responsible yeah. responsible yeah there's, there's the word yeah. i'm looking for thank you yeah. why is he fighting this i guess how does I, he derive ownership i can't read his mind i have no idea um no, but how would the courts um how would the courts it's the word. Give him ownership rights. What? Just because, because it, the, a sperm went in there? It yeah, was her egg. If you're treating something as property, and as the analogy was made a little earlier, like a joint bank account, okay? Well, then both parties have equal right to that bank account. And so for a court to rule, you know, hey, it takes both of you to agree on how you're going to split that money or I'm going to split it equally or things like that. That happens every day of the week in custody fights and property fights. But this isn't, pro you know, a, an embryo is not property that can be divided or split that right. way. And so by effectively saying, I'm going to make this a joint property situation so father can veto it, they've effectively given the authority over to the father to to stop all of this. It's So it's really many, not a joint situation. Again, thinking like a liberal, I see each each embryo that they have as a human being. But mm -hmm. how many embryos are they? And why don't why doesn't the court just say, fine, you get you get half and the other person gets Solomon completed? Not yeah. I don't know. I don't think that's been necessarily been argued. And I don't know that we would I don't know. I'd have to think about that. I don't I don't think we would want to consign five of the embryos to death. To death. The other, you know, uh, uh, the other five to the mother. I don't know. I, I'd have to think about that. But this whole no, thing, I, I mean, I, I, 
I'm, into. I'm we're just not going back to the past course. Yeah, we're not in the past into course. Whether you right. should do this at all, you know, whether right. or not there should be this sort of this is the problem that arises when technology gets to the place where we are today. And now you have these embryos that have been created, if I can use that phrase, and they're in they're frozen, they're in stasis. I mean, you know, these are illegal conundrums that, you know, medical terms. Let's just say they are they are in an induced coma for right now. Sure. <laughs> yeah. All right. I just they're look still at them living. as being in a safety deposit box that they were put in there by the mother who owned them. They were her eggs that got invaded by his little minuscule sperm. And so really the, the preponderance is they're hers. But the, the question is if they're life, I don't see how life, whether they're life or not, determines who has control of them. That's true. Uh, again, about our, our case law and, and the system we have in place right now says that once fertilization occurs, it is completely 100% the choice of the mother, whether or not okay. to continue and bring that you know, embryo to full term and a birth. So that explains. We're, we're, we're basically. Now, I'll just mention this real quick. You know, the Dobbs case, which is pending right now in front of the U.S. Supreme Court, the Mississippi abortion law, uh, 15 week regulation that they put in place. The Supreme Court's hearing arguments on that right around the 1st of December. We filed an amicus brief in that case. There's another amicus brief that hey, was just filed. David, David, I got to cut you off. David, okay. we got the music started. We hold right. over till the, if you can till the uh, after the break, folks. We'll be back after these messages. And now more with your host, Pastor Richard Dietering on Wham. Pastor Rick will be joining you momentarily, but in the meantime, I'm Derek Stone with another moment on sports. Fifty years ago today, the third-ranked Michigan Wolverines football team obliterated the Iowa Hawkeyes 63-7. The Mazan Blue dominated on the ground with 493 rushing yards and 5.8 yards per carry. Ed Shuttlesworth scored on a pair of three yard touchdown runs, and he added another from five yards out. Alan Walker found his way to the end zone twice, the first of which was a 28-yard carry, and the other was a nine-yard carry. Billy Taylor, Glenn Dowdy, and Bob Thornblad each scored on touchdown runs of five, two, and three yards, respectively, while Bo Rather caught a 24-yard touchdown pass from Tom Slade to round out the Wolverines' scoring. Now here's your Moment of Clarity host, Pastor Rick Dietering. So last week I was watching TV with my wife. Uh, she actually sat down and watched mixed couple curling with me. Uh, it's just to narrow down who's going to be on the team. And she actually realized that curling is really a sport and is interesting. Um, and she started to notice things like, hey, there's bumps on the ice. How did they get that? So, hey, yeah, curling is fun to watch. So... Stay tuned for the Olympics, folks. That's going to be the only thing in the Winter Olympics worth watching, I'm sure. We have our guest still on the phone with us, David Coleman. Um, we're talking about a case that he's dealing with. And uh, 
we were talking about it during during uh, the break. And right now we have one state that's trying to push a 15 weeks, no abortions after 15 weeks. How many weeks is it right now in the state of Michigan that uh, a woman can kill her baby up to? Is it well, 24 under weeks? Michigan, under Michigan law, it's zero weeks. Michigan zero weeks. is the strongest um, you know, abortion law in the country. If Roe v. were overturned, our law comes back into place, which is why Governor Whitmer was trying to get the legislature to change it a few weeks ago. But um, our our law protects babies from the moment of conception. So right. we don't have a six week or a 15 week or a 25 week, you know, where you oh, can have so abortion before. There's no, no limit. No limit at all. So right now, if someone wants to kill their baby under under the law, there's nothing saying how no, far in the pregnancy they can Under Michigan law, they're prohibited at any point. That's what I mean by no limit. Yeah. It's from right. the no. beginning. It's from the get-go. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But we do have we do have abortion clinics in Michigan. Of course. And how late will they allow a pregnancy to go before they will not kill the baby? Oh, uh, they do it right up to the moment of birth. Oh, they do. Sure. So, so 15 they, weeks in, in Mississippi? When it's later, when it's later in the pregnancy, they just have to couch it in terms of, oh, it's for the health of the mother or it's something like that. Um, that, that they, because right now the current Roe standard, of course, is viability, and that's been getting pushed back for, you know, earlier and earlier. And so, um, up to that point, the mother can just have an abortion for no reason whatsoever. After that point, she can still have an abortion. It just has to fall within these areas of the health of the mother or things like that. So, so 15 weeks, where I'm going with this is the, these embryos, even in Mississippi, if they get the 15 weeks, um, these embryos are beyond 15 weeks now, right? They're almost teenagers, aren't they? Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, they're, they're <laughs> uh, middle school age, at least, something like that. Um, but, you know, it's interesting you bring up an interesting point because Michigan was pushing, there was a move to try to have the heartbeat bill passed in Michigan that would have made it like six weeks or eight weeks or something like that. That actually would have weakened Michigan's laws. I mean, Michigan's right. law right now protects from the moment of conception. So if we were to change that to six weeks, you're actually giving a window then where an abortion could happen, which right, right. now it's not permissible under Michigan law. So most hey, of we got bill makes sense, but not here in Michigan. All right, let's get Gary on the line. He's been waiting patiently since before the break. Um, Gary, you have a question or a statement? Hey, Rick. Um, yeah, I was wondering, uh, in the uh, uneventful uh, event that the, the mother and the father uh, meet at untimely demise, what happens to those embryos to become wards of the state or what would happen because they are alive? That's a real good question. I don't have the answer to. I, I assume because they have a contract regarding the in vitro fertilization and the embryos and paying. I I really don't know uh, what would occur at that point. All right. Thank you. I, I think you've seen, in, in my opinion. Have you seen on. that contract? Yes. Okay. Because okay. we were talking during the break about, you know, well, then who determines who had quote unquote so much rights, you know, if this was like a chicken egg and she had it fertilized by somebody else's 
rooster in vitro and then she put it away in a refrigerator and paid the refrigeration fee you know why would the guy who owned the rooster get have any control over that and so you might have the answer to that with yeah that's part of the con you know there's a contract that set out that the parties had agreed to that's actually a contract provided by the uh, organization the in vitro uh, association or group corporation that that provided this service and but they're not a party to this lawsuit it's just the two parents that are in the lawsuit what i find sad about this is we are talking about life and yeah. I, we we only keep taking it to property because two other courts in the past have taken it to property and it shouldn't have been the, the, these are exactly. living living people i've had this conversation on my show many a times is what do you consider as viable um, and I find that that question of viability is is subjective. It's a straw it, it can it can right. It's a straw man. Yeah. As, well, if you treat it as a child custody case, as David before the, the break alluded to, usually the judge awards the child to whoever the parent has the best interest of the. You know, whatever was the best interest in the child, that's the parent that gets awarded. So, you know, the, then it boils down to, is this a child custody case? Right. Which is what we're arguing. And, uh, the Court of Appeals has said the trial court should now make a decision on. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I'm not sure if I brought this up on the last, uh, last half or if I brought it up during break. It's the, the, if the embryo was in the mother's womb, then the protection of that would be solely upon the mother. The father would have no say in that. Right. Um, at least right now, it has no say. But because the location of that embryo has moved, um, somehow now the mother has less say so in, in the care of her child. Just because of a matter of location. I'm right. sorry. I'm still my, I'm here in, in, in a hidden concave of getting ready to eat some really good food at a friend of mine's house and uh but i am still my mother's child right <laughs> so because this child because these children are somewhere else the mother no longer has say that's the I, I child custody it. portion yeah just yeah, don't get it point. you know it's location well, that was a conversation a, killer yeah i was just <laughs> <laughs> I think I just gave you your argument, David, and now just go in and, and send me, I'll send you my receipt after you win, or my, yeah, right, after you we'll, win. We'll I do have it. a question. <laughs> I can't do that because then I'd be practicing law illegally. So I'll forget <laughs> that. Are you hearing this under the auspices of Coleman Legal Group or under um, um, Great Lakes Justice Center? No, this is Great Lakes Justice Center has stepped in to handle this case, right? Okay, because I was saying, geez, $40,000 for storage and then legal fees. We're a 501c3 nonprofit legal organization, just like ADF or the ACLU or anybody else out there. So, and you depend on financial contributions, am sure. I not correct? And how would people right. financially contribute to this fight, David? Yeah, they can go to our website. It's Great Lakes JC for Justice Center, <laughs> greatlakesjc.org. And then we go to the homepage, there's a donate section. And yeah, obviously if you agree with what we're doing, we have a number of other cases we're handling right now. And I think, uh, you know, soon we have, maybe I'll come back on in a couple of weeks. We have a couple of cases uh, involving some public schools and actions being taken against Christian students. So 
there's just so much going on right now, and Great Lakes is uh, out there fighting these fights, and we sure could use the support of anybody who agrees with us and supports what we're doing. That's for sure. Okay. David, we've got another caller on the line. Just be prepared because he could end up asking you to talk about something other than what we're talking about because that's just the way he is. That would um, not be possible, but I'll try. <laughs> hey, Joe. How you doing? Hey, guys. I called in, and he did address why I and many others oppose the Heartbeat Coalition bill because it actually weakened our position, not strengthened it. But unfortunately, there are a lot of well-intentioned new people involved in politics that just want to do something, even if it might be the wrong thing, like now the Unlock Michigan 2 petition, which concedes the health department lockdown authority that it doesn't have. Are those apples and apples, Dave? Wait a minute, well, he did it. He changed the subject. He did it. <laughs> well, look. Well, it I relates. Think it's the same yeah. thing with the heartbeat and the unlock, too. Well-intentioned people who just don't know the current laws or the Constitution are wanting to do something, even if it's the wrong thing, and actually growing the deep state. Am I right on mm -hmm. that or no, Dave? Well, I mean, it does take it a step back. I mean, the Unlock Michigan uh, petition drive would actually curtail the power of the governor. I mean, look, these laws were put in place 50 years ago, 70 years ago for actual emergencies, not for something with like we're dealing with right now, some two, almost two years later. Um, it's no longer an emergency. We're not saying it's not a problem and there aren't things that should be done, but it's not an emergency. And yet the governor and her acolytes and the agencies won't give up their power to control and tell people to wear masks and shut down and all these sorts of things. So what this petition drive will do is it will say, okay, if it's a real emergency, the governor has authority to do something, you know, for 28 days. And then that's it. After that, she can't continue doing what she's doing unless the legislature signs off on it. And they're the people who are elected directly, you know, of course they're all elected, but they're more accountable directly to the people. So I think that's the idea behind it. And then if you've got a legislature that's acting like lunatics and they're continuing it, well, that's how our political process works. You vote them out. But I don't yeah, disagree well, with what you're saying, Jim, that, that the law should be changed and it should be clarified so that we don't have a repeat of this kind of of usurping of our freedoms and trampling on the Constitution that's happened for the last two years. Did that Here's answer your question, Joe? Flawed. I don't have the right to punch you in the face 365 days. If your response to my saying, I'm going to punch you in the face every day for the next 365 days is, well, you know what? Let's compromise. I'll let you punch me in the face 28 days in a row only. Hey, Joe, yeah, I, mean, I, I think don't you have. have. Look, that's what political discourse is all about, you know, and that's why we have these debates. Punching in the face? I can no. I mean, I can conceive of situations where it's a real emergency, you know, where right. something is going on and something needs to be done that's not like what's happening right now, you know. And so to say that the 
governor or, or the government has no capability of responding to a true emergency, we'd all be clamoring for them to do something. So look, it's a fine line, but all of this comes down to, we elect people to fill these spots and to not abuse their power. And the power is being abused. That's why it has to be curtailed. All right, lovely brothers, that, take care. God bless. Hey, Joe, Joe, Thanks. I just wanted yeah. to say, I just want to say, you know, I love you, but David is more interesting and has more hair. So we're going to hang up on you <laughs> even if you don't hang up. So. Hey, everybody has more hair than me, right? So, all right, love you all. God bless. Later. All right. You know, as far as emergencies, as far as emergencies, we were talking earlier about the OSHA law and it, and it being an emergency response. It's it's really odd that what the the shot's been out since last December, and their emergency response is this December or even January. Later, right? Yeah, just just yeah, an that's, observation. That's and that's going back to the OSHA rules we were talking about last hour. That's going to be one of the big fights. How do you pass an emergency rule for this? I mean, you know, an emergency rule is something you put in place quickly and it goes in place in effect. It's a short, small little rule to handle some emergency situation, not a 500 page BMF, you know, of nobody can even read it to understand what's in it. And they're just going to pass it. And it's an emergency after some six months later. Now it's still an emergency. I, I mean, it's this, I, I got a quick question and you may have covered this on a show. I didn't hear it because I tried not hard not to listen to a show. Um, <laughs> I can't do the same. Um, <laughs> um, as far as far as these forced jabs, you hear people talking all over the place about religious exemptions. Now, my my wife got in a religious exemption where she works. Another person I know used the exact same language and believes the exact same thing. I mean, firmly believes the same thing where he works and was denied. Where are the guidelines of what, what isn't a religious exemption in which someone who does have a real religious, a real solid belief against getting this shot, where, where are the guidelines on this? What, what? institutes a true belief, I guess, yeah, that there, should be there really satisfied by somebody. Yeah, there really aren't any other than what the U.S. Supreme Court has already laid down. And so on this issue, which is why we won the Western Michigan University case, was because Western Michigan denied their religious exemptions, even though they were legitimate and well stated and the, and the students had put them in, and they all got denied. What the law says is if you have a sincerely held religious belief then the government has to accommodate that belief, okay? Now, what is sincerely held religious belief? The court has routinely said, it's whatever the person who's claiming the belief says it is. I mean, as long as it's not completely wacky, like, you know, I've got a tinfoil hat and I'm hearing people from Mars, you know, sort of thing, I, you could question the sincerity. But 99.9% .9 of the time, if it's, you know, a sincere belief held by someone, the courts say that's enough. Then the right. issue here is what level of scrutiny, you know, how does a court review a case? Once they determine it's sincerely held, then they have to give what's called strict scrutiny, not just a rational, reasonable basis. And those cases get won or lost on that ruling. That's why we won. And that's why you've seen other cases. Uh, for example, the, the, the uh, person who sued MSU over the medical exemption. 
Mm-hmm. Same judge who ruled our way on Western Michigan, Judge Maloney, ruled against the person at Michigan State University. Why? Because their case was a rational basis, reasonableness standard. Our case was, no, the highest review that you can get under our law, which is called strict scrutiny. And the courts then, t- you almost have to uphold the religious belief. So it's those kinds of legal machinations that happen here. When people are wondering, how is it that one person won over here and that person lost? And you know why is that? It's because of those kinds of issues that, that happen. The reason I ask, I have a friend of mine who works for a municipality. Uh, he's a frontline worker. I, I won't get much deeper than that, but he works in a major municipality, frontline worker. And um, they might, it sounds like they're going to just pretty much deny everything as far as religious exemption. So then they what does he call speak- you? Yeah, they have to sue to uh, enforce their religious beliefs. And so they contact us or ADF or somebody or their own attorney and bring a lawsuit. And uh, that's what you have to do. That's the way the system works. But yeah, I, you know, it's it, it's really kind of disingenuous for a company to say, we're going to offer religious exemptions and then deny 100% of them. You know, that's a sham. That's a pretext. Right. And so once you get to court, usually most courts are going to see through that and will not let them get away with it. Now, again, let me just make one other point too. And I keep emphasizing this as I'm speaking around the state. There's a big difference between government action and private action, okay? Our First Amendment rights, religious rights, free speech, constitutional rights only apply against government action. If a private business does the same thing, requiring a vaccine, whatever it is they're doing, if it's not the government, you don't have a First Amendment right. So that means you have if to they look, get their check, you have to look they, to Title Seven and other statutes to right. protect your rights, not the Constitution. So if the person is a police officer for a municipality or a fireman for the municipality, that's working for the government, though, right? Yes, yes. Then they right. can make their constitutional First Amendment arguments. But if How they're about, working a private security firm who's just providing security at events or things like that, and it's totally private, they would not have the constitutional issues. Thank you. That answered the question I was looking for. Well, one of the answers. Yeah, Ed. I was thinking, uh, I don't know how well it would work, but suppose you worked for a company that had more than 100 employees and you're facing the OSHA requirements and you say, okay, I quit. I'm forming a company and I will subcontract my services to the organization I used to work for as a subcontractor. Would that fly? Yeah, I, I think you're going to see those kinds of things going on. I, I talked to one businessman yesterday who was considering they have just around a little less than 200 employees. They were going to separate out their business. So each business had less than 100. If um, you had a business, I don't know if those kinds of things are worth it, frankly, because I think ultimately the Biden administration wants to make everybody comply with this. So I don't you know. You might make those changes and spend a lot of money divide up your company, and then next week they come out with a rule, well, now all businesses have to do the mandate. And what did it gain you? You know, I, I, mm-hmm. I but I know people are probably going to try those kinds of things for sure. I want to get this question out, and it goes right along the line what Ed asked and what we've been talking about on this section. Uh, what if a company like Hobby Lobby or some other big company that has over 100 employees saying this is against our religious belief in enforcing this? Can, can the corporations fight Sure. On uh, their religious exemptions on this, and what they do you think they would be successful? They wouldn't be fighting the religious exemption because the company doesn't need the exemption technically. It's the employees right. that do. 
but the company can't fight the rule, which is what you're, you're seeing right now. There are lawsuits being filed all over the country right now as we speak. But not under a religious exemption where they feel it's wrong to force no, people but to just out of their religious beliefs that this is a wrong, this rule violates the, the company's religious you know, beliefs. Yeah. Standards. I think that's what you've been asking, same Rick. Kind of issue, same kind of issue, but right. it's not exactly the same. All right. They're, 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 they're still claiming their religious exemption by saying that we don't find it religiously. Uh, we don't believe we would be in the right to do for someone to do this. Right. And so what they're saying is not don't give us an exemption. That's not what they're asking for. They're saying throw out the rule. <laughs> right. That the rule itself is unconstitutional. You can't enforce it against us. So that's the difference. Yeah. Okay. Because yeah, I just remembering the Hobby Lobby case when it came up to the Obamacare enforcement right. of the abortion, stuff like that, that um, maybe if they really, instead of breaking up into companies of 50, um, they fight it on the idea of religious grounds. I'm looking at my notes of what the topic was. The topic was the embry embryos and life. And Joe, Joe did was this. so successful. <laughs> Amazing. Well done, Joe. Well done. <laughs> Joe, you're, you're grounded off this show for seven days. <laughs> <laughs> I think, Like I said earlier, I think Joe gets more airtime than I do when you sum up all his calls to all the shows in a week. Well, I try to make it happen that way, Judd. <laughs> <laughs> well done I, I got a little button on the side and i push okay now ed wants to speak so let's take another caller <laughs> no um so what um uh, when do you hear on the when do you go on the court next on the embryo case well like i i mentioned earlier we filed our brief a week ago friday just over a week ago the other side will be filing a brief, and then it's up to the judge. The judge will either set it for trial, set it for oral arguments. Uh, we don't know. It's whatever the judge determines to do. The judge could just issue a ruling and say one way or the other. So we don't know. It's up to Judge Judge Langton in Oakland. County. All right. Thank the you. Music's playing. Thank you, David. The We're music's off. playing, yep. but we will have time to pray over this. You have time. Heavenly Father, just be with uh, the lawyers as they go through this battle. Protect the life in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, David, thank you for coming. Ed, thank you as always. I love you. And we'll see you next week on A Moment of Clarity. You've been listening to A Moment of Clarity on Wham Talk 1600 with your host, Pastor Richard Dietering. Be sure to tune in again next week right here on Wham Radio 96.1.